Uh, last Sunday, we examined uh, Christ's message to the seventh church, the final church in Laodicea. So although we've examined all seven churches, there are three additional lessons I want to share before we bring this series to a conclusion. Now, next Sunday, just sort of give you an idea of what we're going to do these next three lessons. Next Sunday, I wanted to simply provide an overview of the entire study, highlighting the key truths that we need to apply to our lives and to our church. Because, of course, the primary purpose, objective of this series, series has been to discover what Jesus does look for in a church. Uh, to examine our lives, to see if we're providing that for Him and be willing to make any changes necessary to bring our lives, to bring our church in harmony with what Jesus looks for. Now, in the uh, last lesson uh, that we'll have, I want us to focus on what is known as the overcomer promises. Uh, Christ concludes each of His messages to the seven churches with an overcomer's promise. Uh, and the purpose of that promise is to motivate believers to remain faithful to Jesus in their present trials in light of our future rewards with Christ. And due to time limitations, I just barely touched on these. Uh, in many cases, we didn't even uh, deal with them at all. So I thought it would be good to do one lesson on these seven overcomer promises and end on a very encouraging, uplifting, um, uh, motivating note. Now, today's lesson, you'll see in your sermon notes, is entitled, Jesus Looking for Repentance. And you'll see the verse, Revelation 3, verse 19. Jesus, speaking to the church in Laodicea, said, Those whom I love... I reprove and discipline. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Again, this was Christ's call of repentance uh, given to Laodicea, which you remember from our study last Sunday, was the worst of all the churches. Uh, Jesus said they actually believed, this church actually believed in just sheer arrogance that they were spiritually rich needing nothing. They thought they were just perfectly right with God and on top of things spiritually, when in reality, Jesus said, no, no, you are spiritually wretched. You are poor. You are blind. You are naked spiritually. And Jesus said their sin actually made him sick. Now, I will admit, repentance is not one of the most pleasant topics to talk about. But before going any further in this message, please, please notice the heart motive behind Christ's call to repent of sin. Christ said to a church whose spiritual condition was so bad that it made him sick, those whom I, what? Love, I reprove and discipline. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Never, ever lose sight of the fact that when Jesus confronts you with sin and challenges you to repent, it is never to punish you. It's never to shame you for your sin, but it is to correct 
equipped you for your future good because he loves you. So uh, look at the introduction in your sermon notes. Seven times in Christ's messages to the churches, Jesus commanded repentance in light of his knowledge of sin within the churches. And you'll see the references there. In one of those references, you'll see a call to repentance twice. In light of the importance uh, Christ places on repentance, the purpose of this lesson today is to gain a biblical understanding of what it means to repent of sin. Now, the first three points in your sermon notes are actually a review of what we discovered last Sunday about repentance. And I thought that this would be a good place to begin, just laying a foundation, and then go a little deeper into this matter of biblical repentance. So last Sunday, we discovered, number one, that repentance begins with a change of thinking. That's what the word repentance actually means in the New Testament. It's a change of thinking, and very specifically, a change of thinking about your sin. Great example, James 4, verses 8 through 10. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and He will exalt you. We saw last Sunday that repentance is becoming deeply repulsed by the sin you once indulged in with pleasure with a desire to be freed not only from sin's guilt, but from sin's power, from sin's hold on you. And then last week we saw, second, that repentance is always accompanied by a turning, a turning back to God. Acts 3, verses 19 through 20. Repent of your sins and turn to God. Why? So that your sins may be wiped away. Then times of refreshment will come from the presence of the Lord. So repentance is always characterized by a turning away from sin to Jesus to receive forgiveness and follow Him. And then third, repentance, true repentance, always results in transformation. Matthew 3.8, prove by the way you live that you have repented of your sins and turned to God. There is one ultimate proof of repentance, and that is a changed life. So you put all three of those points together, we can define repentance. And so get this down in your notes. Repentance is a change of mind about sin, which leads to a change in direction towards God, which results in a change in behavior and conduct. Repentance is a change of mind about sin, which leads to a change in direction towards God, which results in a change of behavior in conduct. Now look at the next statement in your notes, and this is the heart of today's message. Possibly the greatest passage in the Bible describing repentance is 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 10 and 11. In this passage, we discover repentance is not merely a single act of, re- of confessing sin, but a deep 
process of being cleansed from sin and restored to God described by nine words. So look at the passage with me. Let's read it together. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation. And this is not the initial conversion, but that would also refer to this deliverance of a believer uh, from sin's hold to walk with Christ. But the sorrow of the world produces death. For behold, this earnestness, this very thing, this godly sorrow has produced in you. What vindication of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what avenging of wrong. In everything you demonstrated yourselves to be innocent in this matter. A.W. Tozer, just a great, great Bible teacher of old, uh, gave this great advice to believers. Listen to this. He said, do a thorough job of repenting. He's speaking to believers. Do a thorough job of repenting. Do not hurry to get over with it. Hasty repentance means shallow spiritual experience and lack of certainty in the whole of life. Let godly sorrow do her healing work. Until we allow the consciousness of sin to wound us, we will never develop a fear of evil. It is our wretched habit of tolerating sin that keeps us in a half-dead condition. So the great, the great takeaway from 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 10 through 11 is repentance is much more than a one-time confession of sin. Now, that is an aspect of repentance. That's where it begins, but that is certainly not where it ends. It is a process that we're going to see that results in a changed life. So look with me now at the nine words in 2 Corinthians 7 that takes us through the process of biblical repentance and that first phrase I want to focus on is godly sorrow, godly sorrow. And this is simply being sorry for the sin, not merely its consequences. This is where all repentance has to begin, where you become sorry for the sin, not merely its consequences. Psalm 38, verse 18, I confess my sins. I am deeply sorry, what? For what I have done. John Enzer, in his book, Experiencing God's Forgiveness, wrote this. It's a great, great quote. He says, medicine to produce health has to examine disease. And music to create harmony must investigate discord. So the first step from guilt over sin to gladness with God is painful. God, the surgeon of our souls, makes a deep cut into our natural pride with a sharp truth. That truth is this. We feel guilty because we are guilty. Guilt is like the warning light that goes off on your car. You know, when that, like in my car, it says, you know, check engine uh, soon. And when that light goes off, it's telling you what? Something's wrong. Something needs some attention. 
you need to get your car as soon as you can to a mechanic where they can examine it, determine what's at the root of the problem, and fix it. And that is what guilt is. It's a gift from God to us. It's the warning light that He's given us. It's something's wrong. Something's not right. You need to get to God. You need to get to Christ. Allow Him to examine your life, to get at the root of whatever the problem is, what's causing the guilt, and deal with that sin, to deal with that problem. Now, let's just talk very briefly about three ways of dealing with the guilt of sin uh, that's not appropriate. Uh, yet, this is often what we sort of default to when we uh, experience guilt. And, and the first thing that we often do is we often try to bury our guilt. And how do we do that? Well, several ways. First, rationalization. Uh, this is where we try to minimize or excuse some guilt, our guilt. You know, I'm only human, or it's no big deal, it didn't hurt anybody, or just one time, and nobody even knows. You know, another way we try to bury our guilt is comparison. Well, my sin might be bad, but look at so-and-so. You know, I see this continually in... Uh, in marriage counseling, it's amazing. A couple come into you, and they, they just sit there and trying to out-trump one another, making uh, one another's sin bigger than the other, one another's guilt greater than the other, as if this excuses them. Uh, another way we try to bury our guilt is suppression. This is where you just simply try to ignore your guilt. You know, I'm I just not going to think about my sin and my guilt. I'm going to just try to forget about it. In other words, I'm going to ignore that warning light, regardless of what the consequences might be down the road. Or I'll get so busy, I'll, I'll just work the guilt off. Or I'm going to just pop a pill. I'll have a drink, smoke a joint. Or I might just go to Disney World, just anything uh, to get away from the guilt. Or I'm, I'm going to avoid places and people that remind me of my failures. Let me ask you something. Have you ever tried... Uh, to hold a ball that's, that's filled with uh, air underwater in a pool? Have you ever tried that? You know, eventually what happens? That thing pops up. You just can't, you just can't hold it down. It's absolutely futile to try to suppress guilt. So we often try to bury our guilt through rationalization, through uh, comparison or suppression, and a second way we often uh, try to deal with our guilt in a wrong way is by blaming uh, my circumstances or blaming other people. You know, God forgive me because I didn't really mean it. Now, let me interpret that for you. God, I really don't need forgiveness. I need just some understanding. That's what, that's what you're saying. And what we need to understand is that our circumstances don't make us what we are. They reveal what we are. In other words, when you're squeezed by life circumstances, what's inside comes out. And then, of course, we try to blame others. It's not my fault. It's what so-and-so did to me. 
the tendency today, and we've all, we all see this in every realm of life in our culture, the tendency today is to escape responsibility for wrongdoing by claiming to be a victim. I'll give you an example of this expressed in a very humorous poem. So we may bring a little levity to this, but a very serious matter. He said, I went to my psychiatrist to be psychoanalyzed, to find out why I killed the cat and blackened my wife's eyes. He put me on a downy couch to see what he could find, and this is what he dredged up from my subconscious mind. When I was one, my mommy hid my dolly in the swings, so it now follows naturally I'm always stealing things. When uh, I was two, I saw my dad kiss our maid named Ruth, and that is why until today I never tell the truth. When I was three, I was teased by my brothers. Now I know the reason why I poison all my lovers. I'm so glad that I've learned the lesson it has taught that everything I do that's wrong is someone else's fault. And that's the age in which we live in today. So you can bury the guilt. You can try to blame circumstances or other people. And then some people try to bargain with God. God, if you forgive me, I'll never do it again. God, if you forgive me, I'll read my Bible every day. I'll tithe. I'll even tithe 20%. I'll even take a junior high Sunday school class or work in the nursery. We just try to bargain with God to pay the guilt off. Bottom line, you cannot remove guilt by trying to bury it, blame circumstances or others, or bargain with God. The first step in repentance is to own your sin. It's me. I'm the problem. I'm the issue. Sort of like what David said, God, it's against thee and thee only that I have sinned. Uh, So the first step in repentance is to be sorry for sin, not merely its consequences. Sorry for what you did. And realizing that shows a character deficiency, an infection of sin that needs to be rooted out by God, where your life needs to be changed and transformed. Now, you'll notice in your notes, for each point, there's a a question. And this question can be used just to examine your life. And let let me add this also. What I'm sharing with you today has been one of the greatest tools in my life. I use this regularly when I deal with guilt, when I deal with sin, to help me go through the process of repentance. And I found these questions extremely helpful in my own life. So the first question is simply, am I mourning my sin or merely the fact that I got caught? In other words, am I saying like the Apostle Paul, wretched man that I am, or again, is it just simply I got caught and I'm sorry over the consequences of that fact? Look at the second word that takes us even deeper into what true repentance is, and that is the word earnestness. Uh, Being more concerned with being right with God than protecting my image before others. It's one of the great obstacles to true repentance. We want to protect 
the image that we have uh, before others. So in true repentance, I become more concerned about being right with God than protecting my image before others. Psalm 32, verse 5. This is David. This is David's psalm of repentance. When God broke him after he committed adultery with Bathsheba and then killed her husband to try to cover up the sin, God eventually broke him and he said, Finally, I confessed all my sins to you and stopped trying to hide my guilt. I said to myself, I will confess my rebellion to the Lord and you forgave me. All my guilt is gone. The Bible says that David was a man after what? God's heart. And listen now, David proved that not in his greatest victory, but in his greatest moral failure, when he openly admitted his sin and turned back to the Lord. Although he initially tried to hide his sin, David eventually demonstrated that his desire to be right with God was more important to him than what other people would think and say about him. So look at the question to ask or to evaluate yourself as you walk through this process of repentance. What is more important to me? Being right with God or protecting my public image? Look at the third word, step in repentance, intense desire to clear my name, vindication, intense desire to clear my name by confessing and forsaking sin. Proverbs 28, verse 13, he who conceals or hides his transgressions will, will not prosper, but he who confesses, and don't miss this next thing, and forsakes them will find com compassion. So please notice, biblical repentance involves not only confessing, but what? Forsaking your sin. And that, sadly, is too often neglected. The word forsake not a complicated word. It simply means to abandon, to abandon your sin, to leave it behind. You know, many people say, and I see this in counseling, I confess my sin over and over, but I just can't seem to get rid of the guilt. Well, in many cases, the problem is a person wants freedom from guilt without forsaking the sin causing the guilt. Confession of sin without a change in conduct is hypocrisy, according to the words of Scripture. And do you know what may be the truest test of authentic repentance? Look at the next question in your sermon notes. What would I do if I believed I would never be found out? That is a great, great test of character right there. What would I do? if I knew I could get away with it in the eyes of men. And, of course, we know we can't get away with it in the eyes of God. It's impossible. But yet, in our foolishness, in our deceit, often, if we think we can uh, hide something from others, we feel an boldness to move forward in that area of, of sin or wrong. So that is a great, great test of character when by yourself, when nobody's watching, when nobody's looking, uh, 
How do you respond to the Lord? Is he a reality in your life? In other words, is your Christianity more just an issue of peer pressure? Or do you have a real relationship with God? Will you realize he is and a rewarder of those who diligently seek him? And so whether it's in your public life or your private life, you live your life before him to honor him. To bring him joy. Look at the fourth word. Indignation. Indignation. This is anger. Righteous anger. Over the shame my sin has brought God's name. Which motivates me to restore what is possible. Anger over the shame my sin has brought God's name. Which motivates me to restore what is possible. Great example of this is Zacchaeus. Uh, Look in Luke 19, verses 8 and 9. Uh, This is what he said. He says, if I have cheated people on their taxes, I will give them back four times as much. Jesus responded, salvation has come to this home today. Now, he's not saying by uh, him paying those people back that he, by that work, earned salvation. Jesus is saying by the fact that he's willing to do that demonstrates that there's a change that's taken place in his life as he's put his trust and as he put his confidence in me. Uh, and let me also say, you know, when we talk about restoration, we often think about restoring maybe material things that maybe we took uh, wrongly, but this also involves restoring relationships. In other words, when your sin has caused a broken relationship, that it's incumbent upon you under God's guidance, by God's grace and power, to do everything you can to build a bridge and to restore that relationship instead of maintaining a wall between you and that person. Now, on this issue of restoration, uh, let me just point out some excuses that we use and I, I think how God would respond to us. Well, Lord, it happened so long ago. Well, if that's so, why are you still remembering it today? Uh, the one I wronged has moved. Well, friends or the post office can often tell you where you can find them. It was such a small offense. Well, if that's true, why is it still eating away at your conscience? Uh, things have gotten better between us, the, per- the person that you wronged. Well, perhaps this is way, God's way of pre- preparing the offended party uh, of forgiving you. When you acknowledge your sin. Or here's one. No one is perfect. Well true. But your conscience obviously is telling you. That your standard of perfection is too low. You are to become like Christ. Or here's one. Making it right will involve money. I do not have. Better to have financial debt. Than a blot on your conscience. Trust God to provide. As you step out in obedience. And he will. And then this is one of the biggest ones. You hear. The other person was mostly wrong. <laughs> that, that, that may be true. But you still have to live with your conscience, not his. And so you want to make sure that there's everything right between you and God, everything right between you and another person as far as it's possible with you. So the question that you need to ask yourself as you walk through this process of repentance, am I restoring what is restorable? 
In other words, if I'm putting feet to my repentance, uh, whether it's restoring something I've stolen, whether it's trying to rebuild a relationship, whatever it might be. Look at the fifth word, and that's the word fear. And I would define that this way. I think this is the fear of God. Accepting God's discipline for my sin as a reminder that the pain of sin outweighs the pleasure of sin. Accepting God's discipline for my sin as a reminder that the pain of sin outweighs the pleasure of sin. Hebrews 12, 11, No discipline seems pleasant at the time. What child enjoys getting a spanking? No one. But it's painful. But notice, later on, however, it produces something. Produces a harvest of righteousness and peace. You know, a lot of Christians have the mistaken notion that when God forgives, that He removes all consequences of sin. And that is not true. Go back to David's example that we just touched on briefly Uh, his adultery and his murder of Uriah. And when God confronted him on his sin and, uh, and, and, and he became broken, God said through the prophet Nathan, God has pardoned your sin. You are forgiven. But then he says, nevertheless, and then Nathan lists off a series of consequences that David would know as a result of his sin, and he would go to his grave knowing. Now, again, very important for us to understand. When God determines that there needs to be consequences, even like David experienced, ongoing consequences, he's doing that not to punish you, not to shame you, but again, to correct you. To, he, he, he knows you better than you know yourself. He knows your vulnerabilities. And He knows where you need to be corralled in and reminded of that the pain of sin outweighs its pleasures. And He even, this is the beautiful thing about God, He even uses the consequences of our sin to take us deeper with the Lord Jesus Christ to drive us into an intimacy with Him, where we lean on Him. You know, one of the great examples of this is David. Because of time, we won't turn there. But most of you are familiar with Psalm 3. It's that psalm, that that beautiful song is built off of what it's called, My Shield or Thou, O Lord. Uh, And if you're familiar with the psalm, it was written when David is fleeing his son's rebellion, Absalom. Absalom comes in, and there's a coup against his father and his administration. David, with a very small group of loyal individuals, is forced to flee Jerusalem and go into the wilderness, and Absalom has this much superior force that's attempting to chase him down. So in that psalm, when he talks about 10,000s pursuing him, That's not just a figurative statement he's making. That's the situation that he's in. Everything looks very bleak. And, you know, I was reflecting on that one day just in my personal devotions. I was thinking, you know, David had to have realized that what he was experiencing right there was part of the consequences of his own rebellion. Because, remember, God said, as a result of what you did, 
the sword will never leave your family. You're going to know conflict within, in, within your family. And the amazing thing about that psalm, there's a part in it where he says, well, let me just turn to it. Uh, let me just read these, this one or two verses uh, for you. He says, and this, this struck me the first time I read this. He said, I lay down and slept. I awoke for the Lord sustains me. I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people who have set themselves against me round about. That amazed me to think that in that situation, David was able to know sleep and to know peace. Why? Because although he realized that this was part of the consequences of his sin, he had been forgiven by God. And he knew because he had been forgiven by God, God even was using this not to punish him, not to shame him, but to take him deeper depths into God's love and his ability to deliver him and to mold him and to fashion him. And when a person has received forgiveness, even when there's the ongoing discipline of God, even when you realize there, there's some ongoing chastening uh, consequences, there's still that peace because you know you have been forgiven, because you're assured of God's love. And even the consequences are being used for your uh, growing in Christ-likeness, for your, for your uh, perfection uh, in Him. In Hebrews 12, it also says this. Listen to this. My dear child, don't shrug off God's discipline. But don't be crushed by it either. It's the child he loves that he disciplines. The child he embraces, he also corrects. The trouble you're in is not punishment, it's training. And matter of fact, it's in that same passage, it says, if you don't receive God's discipline, what? You're illegitimate. You're not even His child because God disciplines all of His children because of His great love for them. So the question that I need to ask myself when I'm struggling with a failure, walking through this process of repentance, knowing consequences, am I resisting or submitting to God's discipline? In other words, am I, am I fighting back at God? God, that's not fair. That's wrong. Or am I saying, God, you know. God, you're the one that loves me most. Therefore, you know what is best for me. And so, may, although I may be struggling right now, I'm going to submit to you. I'm not going to resist. I'm not going to fight back. Lord, teach me the lesson or the lessons that you have for me in this situation. Look at the next word, longing. And I would define that as an intense desire to return to Christ as my first love. An intense desire to return to Christ as my first love. Remember, in the church of at Ephesus, this was their fundamental problem. They had left their first love. Jesus said to them, but I have this against you. You have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen and repent. Now listen, beloved, this is so important right here. At the heart of all true confession and repentance is the reality that my sin was an act of spiritual adultery that deeply grieved the heart of God. That's always involved in repentance. I come to the realization 
what I did first and foremost was an act of spiritual adultery toward my God. And it has hurt him. It has grieved him. Matter of fact, as a child of God, he dwells in me. So when I committed that sin, I took Jesus right there with me. He saw it all. He heard it all. As I was embracing the very sin that he died on Calvary's cross for me, that should be like a spear in my heart. Therefore, maybe the simplest, best definition of repentance, it's simply ending my love affair with sin and returning to Christ as my first love. That's the essence of repentance. It's ending my love affair with sin and returning to Jesus as my first love. See, what would you think of a marriage partner who got involved in an affair? And then they went to their spouse and they asked their spouse, for forgiveness. But then that person returned to the affair and did this over and over and over and over again. Don't you think you would begin to question the sincerity of their repentance? And it's no different with God. You cannot truly return to Christ until you end your affair with sin. So look at the question there. Great question. Am I seeing how close I can get to sin or how close I can get to God? I mean, is, is, are you always looking at how, you know, how far you can push the envelope, how close the edge you can get and still be okay with God? You know, is that the question that sort of uh, you wrestle with or is it more, no, how close can I get to God? How close can I get to Jesus? To love him, to adore him. And then look at the seventh word, the word zeal. I love this thought here related to repentance. It's bearing the scars of my sin, not as a mark of disqualification, but a testimony of God's forgiveness and healing. I bear the scars of my sin, and sin does produce scars because it wounds us. But as God heals us, those scars remain. But we need to see those scars not as a disqualification from God's service, but as a testimony of God's forgiveness and healing. Look at Psalm 51. Again, another psalm that David wrote coming out of his sin with Bathsheba and uh, murdering her husband Uriah. He says, Restore to me again the joy of your salvation and make me, and make me willing to obey you. Then notice, then, then I will teach your ways to other sinners, and they, guilty like me, will repent and return to you. The scars left by your sin are a reminder, yes, of the wound that was inflicted, but they also testify, as we've said, of God's healing by His grace. So you can choose to hide your scars as a thing of shame, or you can bear them as a testimony of God's grace. And we need to understand that God's ultimate goal is to use your failure to demonstrate His grace and power to others to bring them to a place of victory. Do you understand that? You know, we just had, you know, here's a great simple example of this. We just had the National Pregnancy Center Conference. And you know how I've been 
involved in this work for decades, uh, providing a training for volunteers and staff members. And as I've traveled all over the United States of America, trained thousands of volunteers and staff, it's been amazing to me to see the large number that had abortions themselves. And it's been amazing to me to see when they come to that place of forgiveness and the assurance of their forgiveness before God, this realization that, okay, God now wants to take my failure and He wants to use it in the lives of others so that I'm in a position to warn those not to make the same mistake I made, but even those that have made that mistake, to have the opportunity to lead them to God's grace, to God's healing. You know, I think of Peter, denied Jesus three times. The denial didn't disqualify him as he came to know God's forgiveness. And as he came to know God's forgiveness, what did Jesus tell him? Feed my lambs. And in Peter, if you read First and Second Peter, especially First Peter, how he just encourages believers in times of persecution and difficulty not to deny Lord, but to remain faithful. Uh, to God. And here's a man who failed Christ at that very point, but knew God's forgiveness, knew God's healing, and his scars became a testimony of God's grace and forgiveness to bring healing to others. And so the question, am I reaching out in compassion to restore others who have sinned? In other words, you don't want to go into shame as if God can't use you. You also don't want to become haughty. No, you want to let this create compassion in you to where you reach out to restore others who have sinned. And then look at the eighth phrase, avenging of wrong. Avenging of wrong. I would define this as an intense desire never to tolerate sin, but to kill sin before it kills me or others. Look at Colossians 3, verse 5. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. So this is an intense desire never to tolerate sin. That's what repentance produces, to kill sin before it kills you or before it kills others. Let me go back to what we stated a minute ago. The essence of repentance is what? Leaving my love affair with sin and returning to Christ as my first love. Now that Christ is my first love, I'm going to be ruthless to deal with anything that would hinder my relationship with Christ, that would hinder or block my fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And that, that's why repentance is really a lifestyle when you think about it. If I could use this example, August 10th, 1974, Kathy and I stood before one another and we said our marriage vows to one another that we would forsake all others to remain faithful to each other. Well, what is marriage? It's every day living that out, living that repentance out. That repentance of what? Forsaking others to stay true to your partner, that they're your first love. And it's the same thing with the Lord Jesus Christ. When that repentance works in me, that, that repulsion of sin, that I see the spiritual adultery and, and just how terrible it was, and I end that love affair, I return to Christ, I am going to be ruthless. And I'm going to be very careful to watch for anything 
that would hinder my relationship, my fellowship with, with Christ. The Scottish theologian David Brown wrote, I love this, if you don't kill sin, sin will kill you. Uh, the Puritan Richard Baxter wrote, use sin as it will use you. Spare it not, for it will not spare you. It is your murderer and the murderer of the world. Use it, therefore, as a murderer should be used. Kill it before it kills you. So practically speaking, what does that mean? It means you have to accept the fact there are some things that you cannot look at. There are some things you cannot read. There are some things you cannot listen to without opening the door to sin. In other words, what repentance does, it brings you to the place where I finally realize the real battle with sin is a battle with my mind. So what repentance brings you to is I get aggressive with nipping sin in the bud in my thought life. Again, you've heard me say many times from this pulpit, I may not can stop the adversary's temptations. Uh, like I think it was Martin Luther said, I may not can stop the birds from flying over my head, but I can stop them from building a nest in my hair. And so, yes, I'm going to have evil thoughts come in. I'm going to have tempting thoughts come in. That's not sin in and of itself. How do I respond when that happens? Do I linger on those thoughts? Do I let myself run with those thoughts? Imagine. Uh, or do I nip it in the bud? Recognizing that thought is not from God. That thought is not appropriate. And right at that moment, I turn to God. I turn to His Word. I turn to love Him, to honor Him, to worship Him. And that's where God wants to bring each one of us. And again, I'll say it again. I've said this a million times from this. Well, not a million times, but I'm sure I've said it at least a hundred times from this pulpit. I've never known any believer, never known any single believer that has known any degree of significant victory and growth in their life until they got serious about their thought life. And if you're not serious about your thought life, and if you're not asking God to work in that area of your life, you're just kidding yourself if, you're going to, if you think you're going to know any significant growth. Because that is where the battle has to... See, in other words, sin, doesn't, sin begins when you what? Entertain it in the mind. And as you begin to entertain it in the mind, you're more likely to take the bait. So nip it in the bud. So the question is, am I aggressively nipping sin in the bud in my thought life? And then the ninth word, innocent. And this brings us full uh, circle, gaining a clear conscience before God. Acts 24, 16, I always try to maintain a clear conscience before God and all people. That's the thing that we want to drive us, to motivate us. That I live my life saying I don't want there to ever be anything between me and my God, me and another person that I have not sought to make right as far as it is possible for me. So the question is, is my conscience... You need to ask yourself this right now. Is my conscience right now at peace with God and all people? Do I have a clear conscience with God and all people? So what have we seen today? What is true repentance? Let's remind ourselves before we conclude. It begins with godly sorrow. 
being sorry for the sin, not merely its consequences. Then there's earnestness, being more concerned with being right with God than protecting my public image. And then vindication, an intense desire to clear my name by confessing and forsaking sin. And then indignation, anger, righteous anger over the shame my sin has brought God's name, which motivates me to restore what is possible. And then fifth, fear, accepting God's discipline for my sin as a reminder that the pain of sin outweighs the pleasure of sin. And then six, longing, an intense desire to return to Jesus as my first love. Seven, zeal, bearing the scars of my sin, not as a mark of disqualification, but a testimony of God's forgiveness and healing. Eight, avenging of wrong, an intense desire to t- never to tolerate sin, but to kill it before it kills me or others. And then the word innocent, gaining a clear conscience before God. So I hope what we've seen driven home today is that repentance is not just a single act of confessing sin. A lot of believers have that thought. You know, if I just simply confess my sin, that that's repentance. No, I hope you've seen repentance goes much, much deeper than that. It's a process where you allow God to get at the very root of the sin, to deal with that sin to cleanse you of not just the guilt but the power of that sin over your life, to know Jesus is your first love as you in your affair with that sin, knowing Him is your first love, and to be used by God to minister to others. Father, uh, thank You for this. I trust a very uh, practical uh, lesson today on repentance as we've seen in these uh, messages to the seven churches. Uh, Uh, Christ uh, has repeatedly uh, issued these calls to repentance. Uh, So, Lord, I trust we have a better understanding now of what that call truly means. And, uh, Lord, I pray you would even uh, give us the grace to use uh, these sermon notes as a tool in our lives um, uh, to uh, allow you to deal with our sin and to take us through the full process of repentance Uh, that we would honor you uh, in that way. So again, thank you for your unending love, uh, that once we are caught by you, uh, there is no escape from you. There is no escape from your love. But thank you that you love us with a love that's not just tender, but it's tough, and it's a love that's not going to let us off. You're, You're committed to achieving your goals to make us more like Jesus. Therefore, you're going to be very aggressive in rooting sin out in our lives. And Lord, we pray that we would not resist you in that process, as painful as it may be. Uh, But Lord, we would uh, let you take us deep into true repentance, knowing that coming out the other end, there is nothing but great joy. As we do know you as our first love, as we're brought into deeper depths of intimacy with you, and uh, deeper realms of service in ministering to others, and uh, being used uh, by you. For it's in Christ's name we do pray. Amen.